0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Supreme Court preview of the 2021-2022 term. Please welcome our host, Zach Smith, Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Nice Center. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today for the Heritage Foundation's Annual Supreme Court Preview. We appreciate you joining us whether you're here with us in person or whether you're joining us online. My name is Zach Smith, and I currently serve as a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, where, among other duties, I co-host our weekly Supreme Court court podcast, SCOTUS 101, along with my colleague Giancarlo Canaparo. The court will begin hearing oral arguments in its upcoming term next week. This will be the first time the justices will hear in-person arguments since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, It will also be the first time that Justice Amy Coney Barrett will hear in-person arguments. And just to keep things interesting, the justices will also be experimenting with a new oral argument format. On top of that, the court has already agreed to hear several important cases involving issues such as gun rights, abortion, and religious liberty, just to name a few. To help break all of this down and preview what the court will be up to this term, I'm pleased to be joined today by two former Solicitors General, the Honorable Paul Clement and the Honorable Noel Francisco. Neither really needs any introduction, so I'll keep their introductions relatively short. Uh, First is the Honorable Paul Clement. Paul currently serves as a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Kirkland & Ellis. Prior to that, he served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States from June 2005 to June 2008. He clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. He has argued over 100 cases before the Supreme Court, which is more than any other lawyer in or out of government in the past 20 years. Next is the Honorable Noel Francisco. Noel currently serves as the partner in charge of the Washington, D.C. office of Jones Day. Prior to that, he served as the 47th Solicitor General of the United States from 2017 to 2020. He has argued some of the most important cases before the Supreme Court over the past several years. As Solicitor General, he also spearheaded the government strategy to seek emergency relief in the appellate courts and at the Supreme Court when lower courts issued nationwide injunctions prohibiting important government programs. Noel clerk for Judge Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he also clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia at the U.S. Supreme Court. Please help me welcome both Paul and Noel to our panel today. And since our time is relatively short today and we have a lot of a lot to cover, I'll jump right into the cases if that's okay. And uh, Paul, if we could start with you, if you could uh, tell us about the major Second Amendment case, the court will hear this
0: term, in uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Brun. Uh, I'd be happy to, and uh, it's, great to, it's great to be here um, again and to see everybody uh, in person here, and it's great to be with my uh, my good friend, Noel, so uh, thanks for hosting this great event. So um, the, the court has this uh, Second Amendment case on its docket. The name may sound a little familiar because a couple terms ago, the court had another case involving uh, the New York Rifle and Pistol Association. But the, uh, this time around, uh, the court has decide, decided to grant what I think is really the issue that a lot of court watchers um, who care about the Second Amendment have been hoping that the court would review for a number of years. Uh, for For at least the last several years, there has been a circuit split out there about whether uh, the right to carry is essentially protected by the Second Amendment, um, or whether uh, by one form of analysis or another, uh, states can uh, essentially prohibit uh, any ability, any outlet for the right to carry. And so that circuit split uh, gave rise to the court granting this this case out of New York. Um, New York's regime, uh, I think, is fairly typical of the dozen or so states that do uh, mm-hmm. strictly limit the carry right. Um, you know, this is, just to put this in sort of national perspective, um, you know, this this case as the circuit split developed was kind of interesting because uh, although a circuit split did develop, there's lots of parts of the country where the circuit split really couldn't develop there because carry has long been legal as a matter of state law, so there has been no reason to challenge, really no laws to challenge. And that's true in over half the country. Um, but uh, you know, about a dozen states, primarily on the eastern seaboard and the west coast, do have strict limits on the ability to carry. And New York's regime is very typical, which is essentially you c- cannot engage in any open carry of firearms, and you can't engage in concealed carry of firearms unless you have a license. And it is virtually impossible to get a license. And I think the single most important thing for thinking about how the court will look at this case is that in order to get a license under the New York law and some of the other state laws, you have to show to the satisfaction of a government official a justification for carrying that essentially distinguishes you from – the average person. You have to show a very special need, whether it's you know, a, a threat to your life or you know, somebody um, is you know, subject to a TRO uh, who's been stalking you. That's the kind of thing that you have to show in order to get uh, the license. And that doesn't seem to sit very uh, comfortably with a constitutional right that is protected to all the people. So the idea that in order to exercise your constitutional right, you have to make a showing that distinguishes you from the vast bulk of the people protected by the text of the Second Amendment, I think will be a central feature of the argument. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, you know, the state has its responses to that argument. I'm representing the, the challengers in this case, so you can take my perspective on this with a slight grain of salt. Um, and I, I do think this will be an interesting case to kind of see the new dynamic uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, the court had prior opportunities to review this circuit split. Um, they passed on those opportunities to the frustration of Justice Thomas and other justices who dissented from those denials. I think the fact that the court has taken uh, the case probably does reflect some of the recent shifts in personnel. And it will be very interesting to see how uh, the court uh, resolves this case. It will be argued in November.
1: Great. Thank you. What I've always found amusing about these laws, like New York's, is that in order to get a, a, a license, you have to show that you know, you're sort of in fear of being harmed by others. And so who is that most likely to be? The, most, the people who are most likely to need licenses are the ones that you wouldn't want to have licenses, because they're basically criminals. So you pretty much have a very narrow group of law-abiding citizens who could get licenses. And amongst the people who will probably meet the criteria for licenses, most of them would have unsavory backgrounds that you wouldn't want to give them licenses in the first place.
0: Yeah, and one of the other facts about this case that I think is interesting is that the named plaintiffs <coughs> in this case do have state-issued licenses for other purposes. So they have licenses to carry for hunting and for target practice. So you're talking about people who have, you know, I mean, this isn't a case about background checks or anything like that. They've passed all of that. They've been licensed by the state. But they haven't been licensed for the one thing that, at least under the Heller decision, is kind of closest to the core of the right. So I think that's that'll be another fact that the court will wrestle with in the argument. Great. Thank you for that summary. Uh, Noel, if we could
2: turn to you now to talk about the major abortion-related case the court will hear this term on December 1st. Uh, which is the Dobbs case uh, Dobbs v Jackson women's Health Organization
1: sure and and that's actually one of uh, two abortion cases the court has it's obviously the more important of the two and it involves a Mississippi abortion law that bans abortions after 15 weeks which is uh, roughly uh, when uh, when you have a fetal heartbeat uh, the law uh, the law was obviously challenged and um, uh, the issue is, can you ban abortion after 15 weeks consistent with the Supreme Court's decisions in Roe and Casey? Now, on their face, Roe and Casey would seem to prohibit this kind of law because Roe and Casey draw the line at viability. Uh, the state can uh, restrict abortion post-viability but not pre-viability, and most would agree that 15 weeks is pre-viability, though I'd note that given changes in science, the viability line is a constantly Uh, moving target. So in light of this, the the state decided to full-on argue that the Supreme Court should overturn Roe and Casey in order to uphold the law. I think there are a couple of different ways that the court could go in a case like this. Uh, I tend to think that there's probably five votes to uphold the law. They could do that by accepting the state's invitation and overturning Roe and Casey, which I think is a distinct possibility here. Uh, They could also try to uh, say that the state law is consistent with some understanding of Roe and Casey. Uh, I guess that's possible. I haven't yet myself figured out what that argument would be given the viability line. They could do something that I would call a, a Casey light. They could redefine the abortion right the way that Casey redefined it and under that redefined right conclude that Mississippi's law satisfies the redefined right and of course you know it's possible that they could just say no rowan casey are on the books they're good law and these uh this statute is unconstitutional under rowan casey Um, i think some version of one of the first three options is the most likely outcome uh and i think it's largely going to turn on whether there are five justices who uh uh, are willing to you know ac- accept the the political heat that will come from overturning a couple of cases like uh, Roe and Casey?
2: Paul, is there anything you'd like to add?
0: No, I, I I just I do think the the argument here will be an interesting counterpoint to all of the sort of you know public attention that's come in the wake of the court not er- intervening with the Texas statute. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think that, uh, that that there are a lot of things about that statute that made that sort of a very kind of idiosyncratic issue for purposes of trying to, uh, you know, get emergency relief. I mean, you know, Knowles thought a lot about getting emergency relief from the court, but generally when you're trying to seek emergency relief, you have an enforcement agent who's the target and... You know, with the, the way the Texas law was structured, that was that was problematic. And so, I you know, I think there's 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 just been a lot of attention on that this issue. And I think the way the court approaches this case, even at oral argument, I think will you know be an interesting kind of contextualization of the of, of everything we've seen over the last month. Yeah, and
1: what makes the case tricky is that in most abortion cases in recent years, those that are uh, defending the abortion restriction try to make the argument that, look, you don't really have to get into whether Roe and Casey were rightly decided, because under the undue burden standard, this law doesn't impose an undue burden. It's it's very tricky to advance that kind of argument in this case if you think that Roe and Casey drew a clean line at viability and said that it's only post-viability that you get into this undue burden standard. But pre-viability, there's a, essentially an absolute right to abortion. If that's the right understanding of Roe and Casey, then it's hard to make the argument that has traditionally been made in recent abortion cases. So you really do either have to, I think, take on Roe and Casey head on or or argue that it should be redefined in a way that allows the law to, to, to stand. But you, it's trickier to argue that even taking Roe and Casey at face value, these laws ought to be upheld.
2: Now, Noel, you mentioned Dobbs is one of two abortion-related cases before the
1: court uh, this term. Uh, Could you briefly tell us about the other one as well? Sure. The other one is called Cameron against uh, EMW, and it started out as an abortion case, but it's kind of morphed, I think, more into a federalism case, pitting uh, the state against the federal judiciary. Uh, That's where you had a Kentucky law that banned a particular type of abortions, uh, dilation and extraction. Abortions. Uh, it was challenged. Uh, the named defendant in the case was the Secretary of State, but the Secretary of State was represented by the Attorney General in the litigation defending the statute. District Court struck it down, Sixth Circuit struck it down, and then the Secretary of State decided that he didn't want to continue defending the constitutionality of the law, so he essentially gave up and said, I'm not going to file a cert petition. Not going to seek any kind of rehearing in bank in the case, uh, so the attorney general wanted to step in and continue the defense of the law. Attempted to intervene as a defendant in the case, and the Sixth Circuit uh, that had uh, that had struck down the law denied the attorney general's attempt to intervene in the case to uh, continue defending the law. Uh, it was particularly important because the Supreme Court then decided uh, the June Medical case where Chief Justice Roberts issued the, the, provided the fifth vote and issued a separate opinion under which the Kentucky law arguably could have uh, withstood scrutiny, uh, but nobody was available to file a petition in the Supreme Court and seek a GVR in light of the June medical case because the Sixth Circuit wouldn't allow the state AG to intervene. So it really boils down to uh, whether the federal judiciary is acting appropriately when they're, using these uh, uh procedural limits to essentially prevent a state from defending the constitutionality of its own law i suspect that uh the 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 court is not going to have a lot of tolerance for that kind of gamesmanship
2: great paul is there anything you'd like to add uh paul if we could continue with you with our next case uh, carson v Macon
0: Sure. So this is one of the kind of, I think, important religious liberty cases that the court is going to consider this term. Um, I think the best way to think about this case is it's really a follow-on to uh, the Espinoza case from a couple of terms ago and the Trinity Lutheran case from a couple of years before that. Um, this case in, it arises out of Maine. Um, you know, Maine is sort of classically rural and that kind of creates the dynamic that leads to the case which is they divide the state up into these educational districts um, but many of the educational districts are so sparsely populated that they actually can't sustain a uh, a high school in that jurisdiction so they might have elementary school but the time it gets to high school they don't have their own high school in the district so the state law provides Uh, essentially state funding to go to uh, a a secondary school, either in an adjoining public uh, district or a private school. And the availability of private schools has long been part of the program. Um, You can even go to boarding schools and fancy places like that. But the law has long had an express prohibition on using the funds at a sectarian school. So it is expressly limited to non-sectarian private schools. <clears throat> and in light of the Espinoza and especially and Trinity Lutheran cases, that kind of facial prohibition on using otherwise broadly available aid to go to a sectarian school or a religious school and that kind of express sort of limitation of public funding to non-sectarian schools, seems very vulnerable um, under the Free Exercise Clause and the logic of the Espinoza and Trinity cases. And the litigants here, um, you know, sort of brought to the court's attention, I think this case was uh, initially briefed before Espinoza came down, and then Espinoza came down, uh, there was supplemental briefing on Espinoza, and the First Circuit nonetheless said that Maine's program was constitutional. Um, even though I think there were some pretty strong counter winds coming from the court in the Espinoza and Trinity Lutheran cases. And the principal justification of the First Circuit in upholding Maine's law was to fix on a distinction that, that, that had been drawn in various places in the Espinoza and Trinity Lutheran cases, and this is the distinction between religious status and religious use. So the idea is it's a problem to discriminate on the religious status and simply say that you can't use this funding at a particular school because it's a religious school, but it might be something different, hearkening back to a case about using public funds to get a seminarian education in Lock v. It might be different if the prohibition is based on the religious use of the funds. And so the First Circuit really focused on that distinction. And now I think the court will uh, consider that in the context of this case. Um, There's just two kind of interesting aspects of the First Circuit uh, decision that I want to highlight before I talk about what I think the court is likely to do in this case. Um, One um, is just as a kind of interesting little historical footnote. uh, One of the three judges on the First Circuit panel was Justice Souter. Um, so, you know, Justice Souter has left the court and, uh, but still has a statutory responsibility to uh, sit on the First Circuit. And so he actually surfaced in this case, although he did not write uh, the lower court opinion. Um, and the second thing that I think is also very interesting is in the First Circuit, uh, the Justice Department participated um, on behalf of the challengers in this case and argued that the main statute was unconstitutional. And we've seen all of the topside amicus cases come in in the Supreme Court, um, and there is not an amicus brief with a gray cover on it. Um, So that means the the, the SG's office is either going to flip all the way around in the same uh, case, or they simply won't file a brief in a case that I think normally... You'd expect the United States to file a brief. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be very interested in Noel's perspective on uh, on, on 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 the government changing position since uh, since he was uh, criticized for doing so in a bunch of cases where the United States ultimately prevailed. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if if a, if an Amicus brief on the bottom side of the case is forthcoming and there is this kind of uh, flip in position. Um, it, it will be particularly interesting, I guess, if the Justice Department changes position because I think they would not be doing what Noel did, which is change position and then prevailing. Uh, because this does seem like a case where, um, at least to my eye, you know, this does seem like it is largely controlled by Espinoza and Trinity Lutheran. And I guess I would say more broadly, um, you know, I think it's fine to sort of use the distinction between religious status and religious use. As a, a a way to show that one case is particularly straightforward, or to distinguish a prior case, but as an actual distinction that could uh, sort of withstand scrutiny in a variety of cases, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem like that's the kind of distinction that could really work. I mean, you know, the you know presumably institutions have religious status precisely because people actually are engaged in religion in those institutions. And so sort of saying, well, it's, you know, it's bad if you discriminate on the status, but um, if you discriminate on the basis of the use, that's okay. That just doesn't strike me as um, coherent a coherent distinction in the long run. And I think that's particularly true if, you know, you keep in mind that the underlying constitutional guarantee here is free exercise. I mean, it's not, you know, sort of, a st- you know, it's not by its terms just a status-based constitutional protection it is uh, you know, a robust protection to exercise your religion. So that seems like one more reason why I'd be very surprised if the court ends up affirming the First Circuit in this case.
1: No? Would you like to add anything to that? You know, only uh, uh, Paul's comment on, on changing positions. Look, I'm, I'm, I've long been of the view that if uh, the, the, a new administration thinks the prior administration got it wrong, it's fully within their rights to change positions. But you ought not be doing that willy-nilly, because if you're constantly changing positions, it does have a a destabilizing effect, and it undermines the the long-term interests of the Department of Justice as an institution. So when we reverse positions, and uh, we only did it a handful of times, I think uh, four times in the Supreme Court, and as Paul noted, we won all four cases. I think you you need to evaluate how important the issue is uh, uh, and how likely you are to win because you do expend, uh, on behalf of the department, a fair amount of capital when you change positions, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that if you're just going to lose. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what they do in this case, Paul. Um, I think that they're probably... I, I, I'm not at all surprised they didn't come in on, on your side, given uh, the nature of the administration. I, I would have been surprised if they took that position. But I think there's probably a real debate going on over whether they should just sit it out and take the heat for sitting it out or uh, reverse positions in a case that I think they're likely to lose if they were to do so and take the heat for that.
2: And, Noel, if you could keep our conversation going with our next case, uh, Ramirez v. Collier.
1: Ramirez v. Collier, yeah, so this is uh, one of a couple of uh, death penalty cases that together raise interesting issues, not just the death penalty but things like religious freedom and terrorism. And in the Ramirez case, you had a uh, death row inmate who, uh, in the de- who, 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 in the death chamber, wanted to have his pastor by his side uh, to lay hands on him and say prayers as he died. And he believes that the laying of hands on him and the audible prayers while he, while he is dying will ease his way uh, into the afterlife, the state um, blanking on this. I think was it Texas. Uh, yes, uh, the Texas uh, allows the pastor to be in the death chamber, but I think doesn't allow the pastor to be close enough to touch uh, the the death row inmate, and doesn't allow the pastor to say anything. Well, he's in there, so just has to stand uh, quietly by. So the 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 inmate brought a challenge under a statute called Arlupa. Arlupa is essentially the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as applied to prisoners. And it has the same standard as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Does a state law impose a substantial burden on the exercise of religion? And if it does, does that state law satisfy strict scrutiny? That is, is it the least restrictive means of furthering a compelling governmental interest? And uh Mr. Ramirez argued that prohibiting his pastor from laying hands and, and voicing prayers during his execution imposed a substantial burden on his uh, exercise of religion. His argument was uh, rejected up the chain until it got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then stayed the execution and granted certiorari. Um, you know, Paul and I have litigated a lot of these cases together and, and, and I'd be interested in his thoughts I actually think that the prisoner has a very strong argument on the substantial burden part of the test. Uh, if you believe that the laying of hands and the voicing of prayers are going to are, are what gets you into heaven, uh, prohibiting your pastor from doing that strikes me as a pretty substantial burden on the exercise of your religious beliefs. Um, I think that the more difficult question, and one that I'm not sure that the Supreme Court is going to resolve, is whether it would satisfy strict scrutiny. That is, whether it's the least restrictive means of furthering a compelling governmental interest, where I could see at least uh, plausible arguments that the need to uh, maintain a secure and orderly uh, death chamber and to carry out the execution in a, in a safe and efficient manner maybe is enough to, to overcome the burden. But to me, that strikes me as a, the more difficult question. Than the substantial burden one it also strikes me as the type of case that the supreme court didn't step into um, in order uh, to affirm paul
0: yeah i mean i i think noel is you know identified where where i think the, the the kind of you know the tougher question and the dynamic here is and you know, every every time you think about these issues, um, you know, we we have litigated these, we've litigated them together. Um, you know, I I, I you know, in, in some respects, so you keep when you think about, you know, Relupa or Rifra where it applies to the federal government, or you think about, you know, a world in which the court, you know, overrules Smith, you know, it, it always takes you back to kind of the, the interchange between Justice Scalia and Justice O'Connor you know, back in Smith. Because, you know, one of the things that, you know, the dynamic here is, um, you know, if you have, you know, a a, a test where the substantial burden um, imposes, you know, triggers strict scrutiny, um, then, you know, Justice Scalia worried that that would mean that strict scrutiny sort of gets kind of watered down in the process. Um, And so if the court, you know, does wrestle with kind of what, whether strict scrutiny is satisfied here, I think you'll see some of that same kind of dynamic at least playing around in in the background. Um, because you know, I do think uh, on the substantial burden, um, you know, this seems like a particularly clear case. Uh, but you know, generally speaking, um, you know, the court, you know, the one thing that you know, both the stat- the relevant federal statutes, and the court itself, um, you know, has always, you know, forsworn is any idea that they're going to sort of second guess the centrality of the belief or the the rest. And the court's cases do leave open the possibility of challenging sincerity. Uh, but, you know, other than, you know, cases involving, you know, the you know the, the Church of Marijuana or something, I mean, you know, the government almost never takes issue with sincerity either. And so it does it does put a lot of pressure on on the strict scrutiny piece of the test in the end. So it'll be interesting to see how the court kind of resolves these.
2: One of the questions I had about the Ramirez case, it initially came to the court on its emergency motions docket, the so-called shadow docket, and was shifted over to the Uh, merits docket on an expedited briefing schedule Uh, do you have any thoughts on that and if so uh, what should we make of that
1: so uh, I don't have any specific thoughts because I have not studied the the procedural history of the case closely enough to comment on it specifically but generally what you you know just thinking back to my days clerking uh, I actually clerked in the heyday of uh, the Texas executions where I think that the year I clerked texas executed over 50 people Uh, and we had a lot of cases where they'd come in on an emergency basis there were uh there were there, there was a practice where if um four justices wanted to grant cert often a fifth would provide a courtesy vote to stay the execution to allow cert to proceed in an orderly fashion but sometimes it comes in on an emergency basis And it's not an emergency in the sense that it's nine o'clock at night and the execution is going to happen at midnight it's an emergency in the sense that uh, it's you know October 1st and the execution is going to happen on October 14th and in that kind of context you can instead of granting an emergency stay just order expedited briefing on the merits decide whether or not to grant cert and a stay in conjunction with that maybe that's what uh, was involved here though like I said I'm not sure
0: yeah and 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 I would just sort of say that you know this I think the way the court handled this case you know is sort of an illustration of the reality that you know although the shadow docket you know sounds shadowy at least um and maybe somewhat sinister um you know it, it really is just the way the court handles kind of emergency motions and there's certainly—I mean, you, you, I think it's fair if you want to criticize the court for how they handle emergency motions or, how, or which cases they, you know, they do, or how they handle specific cases. But you really can't criticize the idea that they have this kind of non-merits docket because every court and certainly every appellate court has a, you know a, a variant of this because you do have you know claims of irreparable injury and you do have you know motions either for stays pending appeal or injunctions pending appeal and you know that's just kind of the the the, the bread and butter of appellate practice and 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 as Noel i think was alluding to it's a very common dynamic in those situations, to kind of ask for uh, a stay pending appeal, or in the alternative, highly expedited briefing, because they both sort of get at the same point, which is we just you know we can't we can't brief this and argue this on the on the sort of normal pattern where it's going to take months and months, um, and so you know maybe this is you know a situation where you know the court by sort of shifting this over. Um, will, will help people sort of understand that you know the, 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 the so-called shadow docket is really just a mechanism for dealing with these cases and, the, and in and appropriate cases in alternative ways just to deal with it with, with, with expedited briefing, but then you still have uh, the argument on the merits. And criticisms of the shadow docket are, are particularly um,
1: unwarranted in the context of death penalty cases because often the, uh, the capital defendant is filing, His papers in the supreme court you know hours before his execution is to take place and so if the supreme court thinks that his filings are unmeritorious then the only option is to either just deny it without opinion because they don't have time to write an opinion or actually grant the capital defendant the relief that he's seeking in order to take the time to write an opinion And I think that, given that one of the problems in this area is the gamesmanship that occurs leading up to the execution, the last thing that uh, the court would want to do is encourage uh, further types of gamesmanship, rather than adopting a set of rules that encourages uh, capital defendants to bring their claims in a timely manner that that actually allows for uh, the orderly uh, disposition of their motions.
2: And there is one other uh, death penalty-related case pending before the court: uh, the United States versus Zarnayev. Uh, Noel or Paul, do you have any uh, thoughts on that
1: case? I mean, it's it, it's a huge case because it involves the Boston Marathon bombers, and in particularly the death sentence of uh, the younger brother who was involved in that vicious murder, uh, that vicious uh, crime. And and I'd encourage you to take a look at the briefs, because when you get further removed from horrific events like that, you tend to forget how horrific they were. But the United States brief does a wonderful job of bringing back into focus what actually happened on that day and how many uh, lives were lost and destroyed as a result of, of, of those terrible crimes. The actual legal issues are not particularly interesting. They're the types of legal issues that uh, wouldn't ordinarily garner Supreme Court review but for the fact that the First Circuit invalidated the death sentence uh, in this particularly gruesome case. I think one of them involves a question about whether the trial court judge asked enough questions to prospective jurors to gauge whether they'd been exposed to uh, too much media coverage on the case. He asked a lot of them but the defense wanted uh, even further and more detailed questioning. Uh, The other has to do with whether the trial court erred in not admitting a prior crime by the older brother that the younger brother thought would show that the older brother was able to exercise influence um, over over him to coerce him into into participating in the murder. These are the types of discretionary trial court decisions that don't normally garner uh, Supreme Court review and, frankly, don't normally garner reversals in the courts of appeals. But I think that uh, given the high-profile nature of this case, given that the First Circuit seemed pretty clearly to step out of its lane in in overturning the trial court on what looked like pretty uh, routine case management decisions, uh, the court felt like if this conviction were going to be upheld or reversed in a case of this magnitude, that that decision ought to come from the Supreme Court.
2: Uh, Paul uh, if you could take our next case it is United States
0: versus Zubeda. Sure I, I, I'm happy to and I think I can discuss this relatively quickly um, if the uh, if the party's name sounds familiar to you some of you may remember uh, that this was one of the individuals who was, who was accused and convicted under in our military system of you know uh, participating along with osama bin laden um he is uh currently being uh, detained in guantanamo um, Culley's here, i see colleagues here you know I, I remember something about you know almost 20 years ago um when uh when when some of these issues were first arising in the uh, in the bush administration and uh it's interesting that, you know, given everything that's happened um, since then, that, uh, that we still have uh, people detained in Guantanamo. Um, and uh, it, this case, um, though, doesn't really arise from uh, that, you know, that, that situation, his enemy combatant status, the process that he did or did not get um, through that. This case is, is really something that he initiated, um, along with his lawyer, um, and the, they, they filed something under uh, a, a civil statute, 28 U.S.C. 1782, that provides for an ability to get discovery um, in aid of foreign judicial proceedings, including uh, foreign criminal proceedings. And so the theory of this action that was filed in U.S. federal court was that uh, he needed to get discovery from some former CIA contractors about the nature of his interrogation um, outside the United States and specifically some of the circumstances uh, of you know, where that interrogation took place and how that interrogation took place. Um, somewhat surprisingly, frankly, to me, um, the Ninth Circuit in the case that's under review here um, rejected the government's argument that it should dismiss this discovery-seeking action under 1782 under the state secrets doctrine. Um, the state secrets doctrine, as, uh, as as many of you may know, is you know a doctrine that has long been a part of the Supreme Court's case law that says that when the federal government, in certain sensitive areas, comes in and essentially says that you know a certain fact or series of fact is Classified or otherwise, state secrets that the lawsuit essentially should uh, stop at that point and cannot proceed in a way that would reveal those state secrets. Generally, you know, when you have these state secrets at issue, it puts the the government in a very difficult position because you know, even to say we neither confirm nor deny can already you know sort of be a tip, and it just makes it very difficult. So that the, the doctrine has, has evolved in a way. That generally speaking, when the federal government invokes the doctrine, which they do not do frequently, um, courts are generally fairly deferential in reviewing it. Um, the Ninth Circuit was not very deferential here and essentially disregarded uh, the government's assertion of state secrets and said that the, the, the action uh, should proceed. Um, that precipitated, uh, I think, 12 Uh, votes uh, dissenting from the denial of en banc in uh, the Ninth Circuit and then precipitated the Supreme Court granting cert here. Um, I don't think there's much mystery about what the Supreme Court's going to do in this case. Um, I would be, frankly, shocked uh, if they don't reverse the Ninth Circuit in this case. And I, I guess the reason I say that is, you know, I think there are difficult state secret cases out there, but I don't think this is one of them. I mean I think the difficult state secret cases are where somebody's legitimately been injured and they would otherwise have a sort of tort action or other action to recompense get recompense for their injuries and they're affirmatively stopped from getting relief that they might well be fully entitled to because the government comes in and says we just can't litigate on this topic at all and you know I had some cases when I was in the in the government that fit those that pattern we ultimately prevailed in those cases. But that felt like a much more difficult uh, argument because you were essentially taking somebody's right to compensation away from them under circumstances where the government was not at least expressly offering any alternative mode of compensation or something like that. But the fact that this arises under 1782 and it doesn't arise in the context of a tort claim or another claim for compensatory relief for somebody who's been, been you know, seeking seeking that kind of re- legal relief, but it's really just a request for information in the abstract in aid of a foreign proceeding. That just seems like probably, you know, the, the easiest context in which to defer to the government's assertion that something is a state secret. So, you know, I would... I, 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 yeah i always hate to make predictions um about cases that you're you know not directly involved in but this does seem like a very straightforward case for the for the supreme court
1: no do you have anything you'd like to add uh, only uh if you know paul i've kind of questioned is there an overlay uh, also of since it's uh, information and in aid of a foreign proceeding you know for the foreign affairs function between countries in addition to the national security
0: function to the United States. It, 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 there's definitely sort of that overlay to it, which I think makes it an even oh, easier, you know hard, an easier yeah. case. Yeah, look, if there's anything that kind of makes this case um, at all hard for the government, I think it's that some of the information here um, that's alleged to be a state secret, you know, has been published in a number of sources, and so I think there's this sort of feel that like, well, these, you know, these really aren't secrets. Um, you know, I write I, I it in The Guardian or something. And uh, you know, I, I think, though, that you know, I, I think those that have worked in the government really do appreciate that there's just a fundamental difference between a fact being reported in the ether and the United States government itself um, sort of confirming that fact or having it confirmed in a U.S. court proceeding. And I think that's, that's at the heart of what the, what the Ninth Circuit really didn't fail to appreciate in this case. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, in the interest of time, I'd like to skip ahead and talk about uh, two interesting petitions uh, pending before the court that the court was set to consider at their long conference uh, yesterday. Uh, Paul, if it's okay, could you remind us what the long conference is and then talk about the uh, Boardman v. Inslee petition?
0: sure so the the long conference is as its name suggests a conference where the court gets together after their summer recess um, and they spend a long amount of time together and they have a long list of cases they're considering Um, the you know during the the normal sort of period of the of the supreme court term the court hears uh petitions for cert um, alongside merits cases and alongside their other work in a fairly predictable pattern so they get together every couple of weeks or every week. There's you know maybe you know half a dozen to a dozen cases that they're likely to discuss at any one of those kind of normal conferences, and then they'll decide whether to take cases from that relatively discrete list of cases. But since the the court you know operates under discrete terms and you know does take the summer off, all of the petitions that are filed during essentially the summer um, get. Put on this one sort of you know summer list long conference for the court to consider. Um, it's you know sort of conventional wisdom among practitioners that you want to kind of try to avoid uh, the summer list if you can, um, the long the long conference if you can. Uh, but sometimes you can't just because of the the timing. And you know my own view is that's probably overstated a little bit because um, you know the the the, the court. Grants plenty of cases off of the, uh, off of the, the, the summer list in the long conference, um, and you know hopefully um, that will be the case um, this, this, this term as well, since the court uh, could use a couple of cases for uh, the sure. December sitting. One of them that I'd be delighted if they decided to take <laughs> is, a, is a case where I filed a petition. Um, this is a case called Boardman against Inslee, and it's a First Amendment challenge to a, uh, a, a Washington state uh, law that was passed by initiative. And in in many respects, this case is a little bit of a follow-on to uh, the Janus case. Um, The Janus case, you may remember, is a case that recognized sort of the First Amendment rights of public sector unions um, to, you know, not only just opt out of the public sector unions, but to to basically um, not have to be forced to contribute to public sector unions.
1: One of the cases where we reversed positions from the prior administration.
0: Exactly, exactly. And the court overruled the Abood case in that, in, 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 in that case. And then, you know, that sort of created this dynamic where if you're a member of a public sector union, you can't be forced to um, contribute uh, to the, the, the public sector union. Um, in response to that, of course, the, you know, the public sector unions have not said, OK, well, that's fine. We'll disband. Um, they have, you know, they've, they've lobbied, which is obviously their constitutional right for various laws. And one of the laws that was passed was this Washington initiative. And it focused on a particular public sector union and a particular market, which is uh, home care professionals. Um, and, you know, these are people who provide care in, in, in the home for people, and they generally are, ab- are eligible for uh, reimbursement for their services uh, through, you know, various federal government programs. And it's, it's a kind of unique public sector uh, context. It, it was the same context that gave rise to the pre-Janus case Harris against Quinn. What, what makes it kind of unique is unlike most sort of groups of employees, where, you know, if you're thinking about, like, the teachers' union, well, they all show up at the school, and it's pretty easy to both lobby them to join the public sector union or to not join the public sector union. But these workers are spread throughout the states, and it's very hard, even for the union itself, to know who is providing these services and who would be a potential member of the Public Sector Union. Um, and so New York, uh, Washington State passed this referendum that basically limited the ability of anyone but the union uh, to get access to the identities of the home health care providers. And so this essentially gave them monopoly on the information and the contact information for the underlying uh, potential union members with the unions and left the sort of challengers uh, essentially out in the cold as a result of this referendum. So, this was challenged on, on First Amendment grounds. There are, you know, it it's both seems sort of discriminatory and inconsistent with the full enforcement of Janus rights. It also implicates some very interesting First Amendment doctrine. Uh, that the court has developed over the years about the circumstances in which there is a First Amendment right to access to information, um, and so I think there's kind of two strains of, uh, of, of a very interesting First Amendment doctrine at issue here. Uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, rejected the challenge; it precipitated a, uh, a very lengthy dissent from Judge Bress. Um So you know we'll, we'll we'll see what the court does with it, but it'd certainly be an interesting case uh, if the court were to grant it. Great, and Noel, if you could tell us about
2: one of your pending petitions, uh, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany versus Lacewell.
1: Sure, another one that I hope uh, proves that it, it's not uh, bad, necessarily bad, to be in the long conference. You all probably remember uh, the various contraceptive mandate cases, the Zubit case, Hobby Lobby, uh, the more recent Little Sisters case that involve uh, government regulations that require employers. To cover contraception on their insurance plans subject to exceptions and that includes uh, religious employers well New York has a separate law a state law that requires employers to cover surgical abortions as part of their insurance plan and the only exception it has is for religious organizations that uh, whose primary purpose is to inculcate their religious beliefs and to primarily employ and serve uh, individuals of their own religion. So needless to say, that excludes from the exception a a lot of religious employers like Catholic Charities Organizations that view their mission uh, much more broadly. Than uh, simply inculcating religious beliefs and that v- review is part of their view is part of their religious mission, serving individuals who don't happen to share their faith. So uh, the Archdiocese, uh, the Diocese of Albany, along with several other Catholic and non-Catholic organizations, sue to invalidate the law. Uh, New York State, the New York State Court of Appeals, which is actually the highest court in New York, um, several years ago had rejected a similar challenge to a a contraception mandate in New York State. So this case went to the Intermediate Court of Appeals in New York, where that court applied binding precedent to reject the diocese claims, and then the New York State Court of Appeals, the top court, denied review. So here we're seeking cert uh, to the Supreme Court from that that process. Uh, it presents um, a, a couple of different interesting issues. The, the main issue is the scope of Smith, the, the Supreme Court's decision in employment D- division versus Smith. As you'll recall, that case says that if a law is general and, new, general and neutral, then it doesn't violate the Free Exercise Clause, even if it imposes a substantial burden on religious beliefs. And there's a big debate going on as to what it means for a law to be general and neutral. Our view is that here, this law actually does have an exception to it. It's got an exception for some religious organizations, but not others. That makes it a non-general law and a non-neutral law. Therefore, Smith doesn't apply, and it should be subjected strict scrutiny. Uh, The other issue that is presented is whether if the court doesn't agree with us on that, it should just overturn Smith. If it sounds familiar, uh, it should. Uh, I think these are some of the issues that the Supreme Court took uh, the Fulton case last term to resolve, but given the the somewhat quirky nature of that case, the court didn't really get into um, the, the details of the doctrine. So I think this case, uh, and I hope that the Supreme Court will agree, provides a very good vehicle to clean up an area of law that is uh, somewhat murky. And I think the the murky nature of it is underscored by the fact that uh, New York State has multiple arguments for how. Uh, under Smith, this is, in fact, a neutral law, and they cite all kinds of cases from the Supreme Court and other circuits uh, that show how they've applied Smith, and it simply underscores how uh, the, the Supreme Court jurisprudence really is uh, in need of a cleanup in this area. New York State pointed out in its opposition brief that um, they've got all different kinds of mandates just like this, whether it's for abortion or contraception and for other things. So how on earth could it be wrong? Uh, to which we, you know, obviously responded. Well, that's exactly why we need Supreme Court intervention here, because New York State has shown uh, a penchant to trample the the religious liberty of individuals for for decades, and they're not going to stop until the Supreme Court steps in and tells them to stop. Uh, notably, the 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 basic regime that New York applies is the same regime that's applied in California. So you essentially have this uh, bad bad jurisprudence and two of the nation's largest states. So hopefully, the Supreme Court will see it our way and decide that this is something that they all also ought to step into and resolve.
2: Great. Thanks for sharing that. We have just a few minutes left in our program, and I think we have time for a couple of questions from either folks here in person or from those watching online. Uh, So if you have a question uh, and you're here in person, just please raise your hand, and we'll get someone to bring a microphone. Or, if you're watching online, please feel free to submit your question, and someone here in the room will forward it to us. Uh, Do we have any questions from our audience uh, in person? Well, while we're waiting for some questions to come in, uh, I do have one question. The Supreme Court recently announced a change to their in-person oral argument uh, format. Uh, Noel or Paul, if one of you could maybe uh, briefly uh, tell us what
1: that is and then give us your thoughts on it. Uh, If you'd like So uh, as I understand it, uh, they're moving back to an in-person format and Paul chime in with any further details because I I don't know all Of the the details they're moving to an in-person format, but the attendees are going to be quite limited It's not going to be open to the public and uh, there's not going to be a gallery rather you'll have the justices the necessary court staff uh, credentialed Supreme Court reporters and uh, then the lawyers that are necessary to argue the case. So you'll largely, if, you're, if you can sort of envision the courtroom, if any of you have been in there, you'll largely have an empty gallery. But then you'll have the reporters off to one side, although maybe now they'll be spread out more, and the clerks off to the other side. Maybe they'll be spread out more, the justices and the lawyers. But uh, whereas you usually have a pretty packed courtroom, I think you're going to have a fairly empty courtroom. They are going to continue to live stream, um, live stream the audio of the oral argument. What I don't know is whether they're going to continue with the format for conducting oral argument. You may recall that when it was done telephonically, instead of the ordinary free for all amongst the justices, each justice, starting with the most senior and moving to the most junior, had about two to three minutes to question um, each lawyer. And when you pretty much went right down the line. Uh, I'm interested to see uh, if they revert full-on back to the much more uh, free and open debate that you had back when uh, arguments were live in the courtroom.
0: Yeah, and I think the courts indicated that, um, at least informally, that, that that they do plan to retain some of this kind of seriatim questioning. And, um, you know, I do think that is be very interesting to see how that works in practice. Um, you know, that was I think, a necessary accommodation to the telephone technology. Um, It's less clear that that's really necessary now that they'll be sort of back in person. Um, I I think, you know, I might have guessed that they would just go back to the way they had done it, but they seem interested in retaining um, a degree of this kind of, you know, structure. And, you know, I I suppose, you know, one, one real advantage that we all saw to the telephonic arguments was Getting to you know sort of hear Justice Thomas as an active participant uh, in the oral argument. You know, in my case, you know, I think I went, uh, you know, for about my first uh, you know hundred or so arguments without a question from Justice Thomas. Um, and then I went five for five on my last arguments, and, and, and that was really, you know, welcome development, and you know, I have to think that's kind of maybe part of the reasoning for why the court is going to retain, uh, you know, at least some vestiges of, the, of, of that seriatum format. Exactly how that all plays out in person and how it works, how it affects the length of the argument, that's another thing that I think, uh, you know, is, is, is going to be very interesting to see. I, I, you know, my, my, my own sense is that this will be a little bit of a work in progress. It's not like we're going to go back and the court's going to have, you know, sort of, you know, kind of in-person argument 2.0 and, 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 and it'll be very, you know, it, it formulaic and it won't change at all. I think it's going to be kind of an evolving process. Um, you know, I think from the perspective of the, of the advocates, um, you know, this is it's kind of fascinating because for years and years and years, nothing changed. Um, and, you know, over the past couple of terms, we've seen kind of the advent of, like, a little two-minute opening where the justices would kind of give you some un- uninterrupted time, which was not something we'd grown accustomed to um, in the previous regime. And then we had sort of the necessary changes with the telephonic hearings, and now you're sort of, you know, going back. And I think the—and the f- Noel alluded to the fact that the, uh, they're continuing to live stream. Um, you know I assume that's principally an accommodation to the restrictions on who can attend the argument Um, you know I think from the perspective say of like our clients um, you know the idea that they can't necessarily attend their own oral argument um, you know is not something that'll you know super easy to explain and so you know I think the the live stream is an accommodation for that Uh, but you know If we get to a point and i hope we will soon where the gallery is fully open and the rest it'll be interesting to see whether the court ever kind of walks that back because it does seem like that's something we've now gotten quite quite accustomed to yeah i totally agree with that and i also think
1: though that once you start doing something like that it's it's hard to walk it back i think that's one of the main reasons why the court stuck with you know 20th century technology and did telephone conferences rather than You know the the type of video arguments that we see in the courts of appeals because i think they understood that once you opened up you know video of oral arguments it was going to be much harder to walk that back and uh, maybe the chief justice just made his peace with the possibility that he would have to live with audio streaming but i i think that going to video streaming would have been a bridge too far
2: and i see we have one question from our, our we have a question from our online attendees um, so if you could please yeah. share that with us. Do you, do either of you anticipate any of the vaccine mandate challenges getting expedited to the Supreme Court?
0: Oh, I mean, I, you know, I, I could easily see it happen because, you know, I think that um, no matter who prevails in the lower court, um, the party that doesn't prevail is going to have a pretty good irreparable injury argument. I mean, you, you know, if the government loses in the district court, they're going to say, you know, this is... This is super important that we do this. You know, people are gonna die. Um, we need, you know, we need expedited review. And if the challengers lose, they're gonna say, you know, look, I have a, a right to bodily integrity that's, you know, about to be, you know, sort of denied. So I, I think these are cases that are quite likely to move pretty quickly through the system. And, you know, whether whether the court ultimately, <clears throat> you know, takes them and exactly how quickly, I don't know, but I do think they that sort of have they they have the the makings of cases that will move through the system rapidly, as opposed to slowly, and I think they're
1: structured to move quickly. At least as I understand the regime, the ch- and we're talking about the OSHA rule that is likely to come out sometime in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, the way the statute works is that challenges have to be filed in the court of appeals, not the district court, and then uh, all of the cases of of all of the cases that are filed in the first ten days. If they're filed in multiple circuits there's essentially a lottery amongst the circuits and whichever circuit wins all the cases get transferred to that one circuit and consolidated and then any cases that are filed after that 10 day window also get funneled into the same court so it's basically structured in order to allow a pretty expedited litigation of these issues
2: well unfortunately uh, our time today has gone too quickly Uh, And that's all the time we have for our panel today. Uh, For updates and information about what's going on at the court throughout its term, uh, please feel free to listen to uh, Heritage's SCOTUS 101 podcast. Uh, But in the meantime, please join me in giving our panelists, uh, Noel and Paul, a hand and thank them for coming today. Thank you.